Hello everybody, Jason here from the At The Coalface podcast. I've created a new sub-series called Mentoring Moments, and Mentoring Moments is composed of clips taken from my one-on-one and group mentorship sessions where we discuss e-commerce, digital, retail, and so much more. Hopefully you get a lot out of this. Enjoy. Yeah, so how are your clients doing? Are they, are they feeling the year-end crunch? I think so. They made it through Black Friday. Some of them, our clients are unique. Some of them don't do Black Friday. They wait until Christmas. And so the ones that don't do Black Friday are getting ready for Christmas. The ones that do Black Friday don't do Christmas. But now they're looking, for, looking forward to 23, looking at 23. So... Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of brands that, in my experience, have maybe historically tried to jump on the Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Cyber Weekend bandwagon, but they find that it's so detrimental to margins that it's almost not worth the effort. And they also find that what they do is they end up securing such hyper-price-sensitive customers that those customers will always be looking for a deal, and so they will not be loyal customers anyway. Plus, the data from those customers pollutes their customer cohort data for other segmentation that they want to do as well. And so unless they're able to easily segment out, say, for example, in a CDP, the customers who buy with a high propensity to discount, unless they can easily segment those customers out of their cohort segments that they send to, I don't know, Facebook for lookalike audiences, et cetera. The thing is, you don't want to court price sensitive customers. That's not, that should never be your goal as a brand. Your goal right. as a brand should be fi- to, to find the customers that are aligned with your brand, aligned with your values, aligned with the category. And not the you know. that were hard. In the beginning, they admitted they felt like they got caught up with this is what everybody else is doing. And now, now they're pulling back and going, wait a minute, this is not who we are. Okay, why are we doing that? So they're having conversations about their brand and who they are. Are we doing the right thing? So they're trying to pull back and say, we were doing this. So how do we pull back when we're used to doing, doing this and then make changes without losing our customers? But the funny thing is, I think if you're honest and transparent with your customers and you can use this as an opportunity to actually build value in the brand and... Yeah say, look, you can actually do email campaigns. You can actually do social campaigns. You can actually, this can be spun. Any quote unquote negative can be spun into a positive. That's the reality. Right. It's all about story. It's about storytelling. And it's about the power of storytelling to be able to communicate effectively with your customers, the value that you place in your own brand. And the fact that maybe participating, you got caught up in the shiny thing, which is the, which right. is the Black Friday, Cyber, Cyber Monday. But that you realized, and it's fine to be honest, I think, with your customers and say, we, we realize this is not actually aligned with our brand values. We, we, are, we realize this is not a, a aligned with our brand ethos. It's not aligned with where we want to go as a brand and the value that we think we represent. And so therefore, we've decided to not participate. And we realize and we admit that may not be may not make all of our customers happy, but hopefully the customers that we are closely aligned with, this will make sense to them. What you'll find is that, and I'm sure you already are finding this with some of your customers, is that the brands that are have almost always for the life of their business been dependent on the next sale period, the next event, the next holiday, the next 
excuse to put things on discount, the next excuse to run a sale, the next excuse to run a promotion, the next drop that they run a promotion against. If they're, if they're a promotional business and they've structured everything that they do on the concept of promotions, then it's much harder to make a pivot away from that. If that's the whole way in which you've built your business, it's very difficult to change that because now all of a sudden you alienate exactly the types of customers you've built your entire company on. Yeah. And now yeah. all of a sudden you have to go out and try to find customers that are aligned with the new direction that you're taking, Correct. which by definition means alienation of your existing customer base. And I'm just a coach, so I'm just guiding them. Ask those questions themselves, make certain decisions themselves. So it's just a conversation. I think one yeah. of the qu key questions I always like to ask is, were you profitable? I think that businesses have to admit to themselves if they're not a sustainable business. In, in other words, if they haven't actually structured themselves to be sustainable in their yeah. current business model, then maybe their business model doesn't work anymore. Maybe it never that's did work. It. Yeah, and that's what they have to come up to. And if they say, they realize that they don't really have anything else that makes them different, they don't have anything value, then they have to come to that consensus. And I could tell you firsthand as someone who had to do the exact same examination in their own business and who ultimately had to shut, we sold our business in the end, but we sold our business. So this is way back in the very early parts of my career when I had my own e-commerce pure play, we were incredibly successful and incredibly profitable for the first few years of the business. And then what happened was, is that the area that we were focusing on, which was memory cards, uh, became a commoditized item. And they also became a lost leader product that were given away or sold almost free with the purchase of other items. So if you bought right. a, a cell phone, you'd get a free memory card. If you bought a digital camera, you'd get a free memory card. If you bought this, you'd get a free memory card. And so unfortunately, what we were, what the entire, our, our brand was flashcards.co.nz. So we were selling flash memory cards. That's what we were selling. And so what we found was, is that the, when we started our business, we had basically zero competition. We were directly importing the products and we were re retailing online. We were a pure play e-commerce website selling direct to the consumer. And what we found was, is that we were the only ones that were effectively selling at any kind of reasonable margin. And we were still making really good margins, but we were still, we were sometimes 50% cheaper than the local retailers for the same product. And because we weren't buying off the local New Zealand distributors, we were importing from the manufacturers and the distributors overseas. And so what we found was, is that sure, it cost us a little bit more in terms of, and there was a little bit of a lead time because we actually had to import the product from overseas and it had to be shipped in, but, and we were warehousing it locally. But what we found was, is that the, the cost difference was so compelling for us and for our customers that it was worth that effort. But in the end, as product, because when we first started out, a 32 megabyte, not gigabyte, megabyte memory card was like $600. And so it was really expensive. Memory was really expensive. And we were making incredible margin. But And, and even if our percentage, because our percentage mar margins didn't drop very much, and this is probably a useful, it's probably a useful topic to dive into a little bit in terms of business sustainability. So let's say you, let's say you run, a, run a net margin of, I don't know, 30%. Let's just say net margin mm -hmm. of 30%. The net margin of 30% on $600 is a lot, in terms of dollar margin, is a lot different than 30% of 60 And that's where a memory, that's how fast memory dropped. Over the span of four or five years, 
it went from 600 down to 60 right. and memory sizes went up prices dropped dramatically they fell off a cliff as more manufacturers came into the space and so even if our net percentage margin was still healthy our net because you don't spend percentage you spend dollars right and so the reality right. is that if your sp or your average selling prices drop that precipitously you have to be able to model out even if we can even if we can be efficient enough to have the same net margins does that net mark at our current average selling price create a sustainable business for us or does it not and i think that's the these are the types of strategic discussions and these are the types of strategic decisions that are really difficult to make in the heat of the moment and if you wait until your business is on the bones of its ass that's a difficult time to be making decisions. You want to be making decisions uh -huh. before you get desperate. I think the other thing that premium brands often do, or at least I see them often trying to do during traditional sale periods, even if they don't count, what they will try to do is they will try to, they'll try to do something different. They'll say, here's a gift with purchase. Let's say it's a high-end cosmetics brand or something like yeah. that. They'll say, hey, here's a free gift with purchase. Here's a value add during this time. Yeah. So we're not going to discount our product. It's going to be the same price, yeah. but you're going to get, you're going to get a free gift with purchase, right? A bundle, or again, they'll do bundles, packages. They'll do special, yeah. they'll spell, do special releases. They'll do special drops. They will do, they'll do something else that will generate additional demand to trying to give it a, another spin. And so yeah. they'll also do maybe a range extension or they'll, what they'll do is they'll sometimes try to create a slightly lower tiered product that you, that then even at full price is a cheaper option. Maybe it's got, maybe it's got less functionality or maybe it's got slightly less whatever with it, but it is able to be sold full price, but at a lower price. And so therefore you now can target a slightly different demographic with that alternate product or that range extended product. This is giving an idea. Thank you. This is also where collaborations with other brands can sometimes be super smart, right? You could say, okay, we're doing a, we're doing a collab X brand, Y brand, whatever. And this is where sometimes the free gift with purchase can come in. We're doing a collab or we're doing a partnership or we're doing a, a special release. I'm thinking of, I, I remember when Ford started doing their partnership with Eddie Bauer and they had the Eddie Bauer, you know, yeah, the, the, the Ford Explorer Eddie Bauer version, right? And then they yeah. had the, then they had the Ranger Eddie Bauer version. And so there's these, there are these, there's these collaborations that you would never, ever think you would fit together or would work together. But if you're creative enough, you can make almost anything work well together if you can yeah. create a story around it. And yes. I think, and, and I think that this is going to come down to a scenario where, for example, I think you're going to start seeing some furniture brands, for example, seeing collabs with the likes of famous industrial designers or phone designers or car designers, or you're going to start seeing collabs that we wouldn't traditionally see together. Because I think those collabs all of a sudden are going to start to make sense in the new world where brand matters more than the cheapest product, where story matters more than the cheapness of the product or the price of right. the product. It's, a, it's always about, because I never hear people complaining, for example, about the price of Nike shoes. I just never hear. Yeah, I'm no. sure it happens. I'm sure there are some people that don't buy Nikes because they're expensive. I'm sure there, that does happen. 
but I just don't hear people complaining about the price of Nike shoes. I never hear that. And so, and that tells you the power of brand that tells you the power of storytelling that tells you the power of differentiation of your product that tells you the power of distribution of your product that tells you there's a lot that has gone into Nike having the position where they can dominate and they've got pricing power in their vertical. And I think that's probably actually where brands are struggling the most right now is differentiation, is curation, is exclusive ranges, is all of these things. If you're not genuinely unique, you're really in trouble. You're in real trouble. Yeah. Tell them to look at the, tell them to check out, there's probably a couple things that are worth discussing with them. Have them look at the collaboration between Matthew McConaughey and Wild Turkey when they created Long Branch Bourbon and have a look at the content that has been co-created with Matthew McConaughey sitting down with the founders. Grant, I think, it's, I think they're up to the grandsons or the great-grandsons of the original founders of Wild Turkey. And he okay. sits down and he, they've made this almost like mini documentary that's available right. on YouTube. And I think it's a 20 or 25 minute interview with Matthew McConaughey and these guys. And he tells his story and he tells a story about how he came to be involved with them. And he tells a story about how he came up with the pl- flavor profile of a bourbon that he wanted. And it's a really compelling story. And sure, of course, Matthew McConaughey would have made squillions off the deal. But the whole point of the matter is it's this type of collaboration that I think can really create a brand halo over your brand that you couldn't get any other way. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe this is an area, I obviously don't know what this product is, but it's a scenario where maybe they could work with an influencer in that space. But Mm -hmm. instead of just purely being a brand influencer, instead of just purely them putting out content saying, hey, I use this brand or look at this amazing widget or whatever it is, or piece of furniture or whatever it is, instead, maybe they can actually do a collaboration, almost like, Yeezys, right? It's this collaboration where now we actually have someone who's an influencer in the community, a style maker, a taste maker, someone who's influential in our space, who are actually collaborating with either to create a limited edition version or a limited release version or a special named series or a special, you know, variant or a special combo or a special package. I think It's about how can brands be creative within the product that they already create? How can they disrupt themselves? How can they innovate themselves? And how can they start to question, you know, because a lot of, especially premium brands, they historically have tried to exert tremendous control over their product. But what they're finding now is the, if they're willing to give up some control for the sake of collaboration over competition, they're finding that to be more successful. So even Swarovski has done deals with Disney so that Swarovski can create Mickey Mouse Swarovski crystals, right? Or they can create a limited release Winnie the Pooh series Swarovski crystal range, right? So it's these kinds of licensing deals and collabs that can really differentiate your product in, in ways that is diff- that are difficult to do any other way. Yeah. It's good to have you here, man. It's really good to have you here. We're, we were just discussing about quite a few different things. We were talking primarily around brands that were struggling to know whether they should be involved in Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Cyber Weekend. How much discounting should they do? Should they do any discounting at all? Do they want to pull out? Do they not want to be involved in 
Black Friday, Cyber Monday anymore because of the, the brand damage that can happen as a result, the expectation of discounting, ongoing discounting that can result. There's a lot more brands, I think, today having those discussions than ever before. And I'm actually hearing more brands, particularly as the economy maybe perhaps is showing signs of challenges and brands are really having to take a long, hard look at these major discounting periods and say, is it actually worth it? Are we actually profitable? And even if we are profitable, is does it justify potentially the brand damage that's done? And does it actually court the totally the wrong type of customer than what we're actually trying to court? We're potentially just courting all of the most price sensitive customers and the moment that they can find something cheaper elsewhere, they're never going to be brand loyal to us anyway for the long term. So is that the kind of customer we actually want on the books? And therefore, even if we secure them during this time, would we then turn around and segment them back out again the moment that we're going out and trying to create lookalike audiences? Because we actually don't want more customers like this. That's a very interesting topic, I think. And unfortunately, I have examples to report on both sides of that, that coin. So I think it was about two years ago was the first time we ever put out a Black Friday offer. And, and I had a couple of puzzles on the go at the time that I was hoping to close before the end of that year. And one of those clients actually jumped on board when he saw the Black Friday offer and he just pressed the button. But I knew he was going to press the button anyway. Yeah. I thought to myself, oh, did I just give away a whole lot of margin unnecessarily? And this year we decided actually not to put out a Black Friday offer because to me the whole Black Friday theme seems to be more refocused, more consumer focused, and that's not the market we play in at, at all. So I decided right. not to, and it, it hasn't made difference one way or the other. All the deals that we're working on are proceeding. No one said, oh, have you got a Black Friday offer or anything like that? I don't know. It, it worked in that one case, but at the cost of margin, but that's the only time I actually had a direct response to a Black Friday offer, if you wish. Wow. Yeah. I don't see Not many B2B brands doing Black, Black Friday, Friday, Cyber yeah, Monday. It, it is definitely, it's, a, it's for sure a retail, it's quite a retail specific thing. Yeah. yeah, I think obviously if you don't have pricing power because you're a Me Too brand that's selling something that's that every other brand is selling or that many other retailers are selling in competition with you, then the only, if the only differentiator you've got is price, then you have a seriously vulnerable business. And this is the key issue that, uh, and that's why I think retail's in trouble. That's why I think that huge swathes of the retail space will simply disappear over the next decade, particularly as B2B brands sell established D2C channels or, tra or traditionally B2B brands established D2C channels. And every major brand in the world is establishing DTC channels. That's the reality. They're all, oh, even yeah. Nike, which we were talking about earlier, even Nike now, every single year, a greater percentage of their total revenue comes from DTC sales. And ultimately that they're getting rid of huge chunks of their retail slash wholesale customer market oh. every year. They are simply knocking them on the head. In some cases, these are big chains that, that have been buying off of them for years and are long-term partners of Nike. But you can see quite strategically, if Nike really wants to be, if you are a retailer and you're selling Nike, they don't want to be on an equal footing with Adidas and all the other competing products. They want to be elevated above those competing products, particularly in terms of the amount of shelf space, the amount of advertising you do, the amount of effort you put into pushing Nike product, and the amount of product knowledge you have around the product, et cetera. 
they really want you to differentiate in some way and value add in some way. And if you're not prepared to do that for Nike, then they're quite happy to take that sale direct to consumer instead, both with Nike stores as well as with Nike online. And so I think Nike is that canary in the coal mine for the rest of almost every single vertical out there that this ability for retailers to add virtually zero value apart from buying something, marking it up, putting on the shelf and selling it, the days of that being the traditional retail model are rapidly disappearing. And the problem is just just having it and just selling it locally in a local shop, not enough of a value add anymore, especially when people can buy online. And sure, online is still not the lion's share of retail. uh, There's no argument about that. It's anywhere from 10 to 30%, depending on what country we're talking about here, but that's still on an upward trajectory. And so sure, physical retail is here to stay and it's not going anywhere anytime soon, but even within physical retail today, the me too retailers are just going to continue to struggle against the ones that have exclusive ranges, have pricing power, have uniqueness, heavily curate the products that they sell, have a powerful story, have a powerful brand, have a powerful community standing behind them, have some really good collabs and partnerships. Those brands are going to continue to do well, but traditional me too retailers that do no value adding. I think most of those are toast within the next decade. I think this has been inevitable since the beginning of e-commerce and a large, to a large extent, the delay for this to actually take place has been from what I've experienced firsthand has been a loyalty by some of the brands to actually continue to support their resellers. Like for Uh example, 15 years ago, it must've been at least 12, 15 years ago, we were working very intensively with a couple of large insurance companies here in New Zealand. And when they got their head around this internet thing, and this is e-commerce, wow, this is where it's going. They suddenly thought, oh, we could be signing policies directly with customers, right? What do we need brokers for? And that idea just went right through to the board level conversations in no time. And then someone said, well, hang on a moment, but we owe our brokers some loyalty and so they stopped it they pulled right back and said no we will allow our brokers to continue to represent us and they were also representing other brands at times of course as well but we will still allow that and now I think we're at a point where that loyalty is starting to go out the window and the larger brands are going hang on a moment but look at the margins we could be securing here if we just cut out these middlemen and just uh-huh. go direct. And as you say, present our product without there being three other competitive products on the sh- on the same level in the shelf. You know, we can now produce our own communication directly to the clients the way we want it, not the way some broker puts it. And let's face it, some brokers will go out and say, oh, you, you could go with this, but we've also got this and that and the other. And the reason they do that might be because they get a slightly better margin on those products. Correct. A better, better commission. commission. On those. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that goes away. And and of course, it's all in line with the whole consolidation that's happening across the world and, and so many levels. It yeah. is. And I just think that the retail, the retail consumer just will not tolerate those two levels of margin in the prices they pay for anything. And so the reality is that the there was historically a massive amount of value add that retailers provided. And historically there was a small amount of retailers as well. There were fewer of them and they were larger in scale. And they were they were doing things like, for example, if you think about Sears in the United States, for example, or if you think about any of the 
department stores or chains, those historic businesses, those traditional mercantilists basically is what they were. The reality is their value add in the early days, geez, we're going to get the, we're going to get the product close to where you are, right? Because freight was expensive. The logistics industry was still in its nascency. You couldn't really get stuff delivered to your door easily. And it was super expensive if you did. And so the idea was even with the Sears catalog days, Mm. in the early days, when you ordered through the Sears catalog, those orders were delivered to your local Sears store and you picked it up at the store. And so it was like an early form of click and collect, but the value (laughs) add that they provided was that then the quote unquote shipping was free because you were buying it through Sears. And so you would just go to your Sears store, pick up your order. And so I think that this is, we're now at a stage where retailers are really struggling to demonstrate any kind of value add because it is just so easy to get products delivered directly to your doorstep, order it online. And the reality is that the consumer ultimately doesn't matter whether they're buying that product directly from a manufacturer's website or from a retailer's website. If the end experience is going to be the same and it's going to end up at my door either way, or I can do click and collect either way, and I can get it cheaper off of the manufacturer than I can off the retailer, then why wouldn't I? And I think the other thing that we're forgetting here is that marketplaces are largely replacing retailers. So those aggregator retailers that are just simply me too retailers that are just selling a a plethora of the same stuff that everybody else is selling, that's now been taken over by marketplaces. And so marketplaces are the unified shopping cart of the online world. They are the department store of the online world. And so if I want to go and And if I want to go online and I want to buy products from five or six different manufacturers in one place or five or six different brands in one place and have them all aggregated together in one cart with one payment, then I'll go to a marketplace and I'll do that. I'll go to Amazon and I'll do that. Or I'll go to eBay and I'll do that. Or I'll go to Trade Me and I'll do that. And so I think traditional retail is just simply being squeezed from all sides. It's an an interesting time. I think retailers are going to do it tough. And I think in a high interest rate environment where consumers are spending more of their disposable income just for both staples, meaning food and shelter, combined with the interest rates and the greater percentage of their income that they're going to be spending on repaying their mortgages, obviously, that is going to absolutely have trickle-down effects on retail. And I think that the retail brands that are dealing A, in necessities, but also B, in the desires, and they really appeal to the emotional desire of the human. I think those brands will probably do okay, particularly where they have uniqueness and they've got some sort of brand power. But the rest are, we see this playing out even in grocery. That's why I think we see house brands continuing to grow in grocery. We see house brands continuing to grow because that is grocery's version of direct-to-consumer. That's like their version of it, right? They Sure, I've got Doritos on the shelf. Sure, I've got the name brand Doritos for you. But next to it, I've got my house brand of tortilla chips, and it's 50% less expensive. And maybe it's a copy of the Doritos. It looks and tastes pretty much the same, but it's 50% less expensive. It's my house brand. And that's why I think we're also seeing the rise of house brands because it's their version of D2C and it's their and it's their way of discounting. Whereas if someone really wants the Doritos brand and they're willing to pay that price, then I'm going to make a great margin on the Doritos brand as well. But if you want to, we don't have to discount the Doritos brand to get your business. We'll offer you a cheaper house brand instead if you want to buy cheap. Yeah, it's targeting different customers and having worked for a food manufacturer in the past, 
some of those products that are showing up under white labels are in fact the same product. Yes. Costco yeah, does Costco, with Kirkland. Yeah, Costco, uh, some people develop loyalty to those brands because once you buy them, they say, oh, it's fine, it's fine, keep buying it. Exactly. It does, it does take a long time to change consumer behavior, but once it's changed, it's really hard to change it back again. Consumer behavior, consumer behavior is often, it's like the flow of water. You, it, it just finds the easiest path. And if I can go and buy a product like I have, gee, over the last 15, 20 years, I've bought how many Apple products? I've never, ever bought one Apple product from a retailer. I buy them all directly from Apple. Now, all my history is there. And when I call Apple and say, oh, you remember those earpods I bought or AirPods I bought three years ago? They look it up and, oh, they're out of warranty, but we'd still like to help you. I had a laptop, a MacBook Pro blow up. The battery literally exploded. That was a 10-year-old oh, wow. MacBook Pro. I was on holiday overseas in Germany using it just to log into my local network. And the battery exploded. The whole case of that laptop went from being an inch or less than an inch it went boom it was like this foot the whole thing exploded was way out of warranty and apple said oh that shouldn't have happened we'll have that repaired for you and just take it into the local repair station they've fixed it up completely new not a dime of cost no. from a retailer ultimately no. they go back to the manufacturer anyway and get approval from them so it's just that middleman that adds no value again like you said yeah absolutely no no value add whatsoever in fact in many cases they actually detract from the value because they have to then lean on the manufacturer because the manufacturer in that case doesn't have a direct relationship with you and so they don't actually see you they, they just see you as a number sitting underneath that retailer's sales that they've already had to pay a margin to. So they don't actually have the extra margin from that sale to play with to give you a great service. So that, in other words, that retailer then has to lean on their relationship with that supplier and say, hey, we spend, we sell 5 million a month for you of these products. You will take care of our customer because we're a big customer of yours. But still, the manufacturer still at that point has less incentive to work with you and certainly less margin to play with to work with you than if you've bought off them direct because effectively they haven't had to hemorrhage the retail margin. They've captured, if not full retail margin, they've certainly captured the wholesale margin and partial retail margins. And so they've just got more margin to play with to look after you. And I think you were a, your prime case of that market is Apple made full profit, full profit off of you, mm. off those products. And so they're like, hey, he's a loyal customer. We know exactly what his purchase history is. He spent thousands and thousands of dollars with us over the years. We definitely want to keep this guy happy because he's likely to be a lifelong customer of ours. And if we piss him off over something relatively minor that's, that costs us, total net cost to us is actually almost nothing yeah. in the grand scheme of things yeah. to keep him happy because at the end of the day, this was they're using their own repair techs. So yeah. you know, these are people they're employing anyway. That's right. No, that's a great example, I think. And yeah, it's certainly, yeah, certainly created that brand loyalty in in me. I can confirm that's for sure. I don't and, even and it's, think about other hardware anymore. It's what? Hey, you're, you're not on a Mac. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. And, and look, I think a lot of brands could learn from a lot of brands could learn from Apple. I think a lot of brands are trying to emulate Apple, but there's so many ways in which Apple has built a moat around their business, and it's almost innumerable. And it's taken them a very because I remember the early days of. Apple Mac versus Windows and how Mac was playing second fiddle for many years and they were relegated. Oh yeah, I remember the Apple IIe. I remember the very first version of the Mac. I remember going over to my neighbor's house 
His family was a Mac family right from day one. We were a Windows family. And I remember going over to his house and seeing this little cube sitting on his family's dining room table. And we were using them at my school because, of course, Apple did deals with schools. That's and they, they were the yeah. first people to do deals with schools. And so every single classroom in our school had a Mac. Yeah. That, was, that was, I think, probably their first effort at moat building that worked really well. And it mm. started to become ingrained that people knew what an Apple was. In fact, when they thought of a computer, they thought that Apple, a Mac, was the computer for them. That was the personal computer for them. And so that I think they've done a lot of moat building since. Combination of their App Store, iTunes, they have done a lot of innovation to the space and built a lot of moats built a lot of keeping it inside of their walled garden. Once you're in, it's very difficult to get out. And then they've done, they've really cleverly built their system to make that possible. Yeah, we have a lot to learn. What I'm interested in at the moment is how much of this, this, and that may be different in the US at the moment, but our reserve bank here in New Zealand is quite open architecturing a recession. They're actually deliberately wanting to create a recession to to show that they are in charge of the money and the interest rates and what have you and wanting to get inflation back into a target band of one to three percent per annum but we're way outside of that at the moment so their answer to it is to deliberately create a recession and this is after we've had two years of obvious government massive spending, which just adds to inflationary pressure. So I'm really interested to see how that is going to affect retailers and other businesses, obviously, that ultimately supply, say, to retailers or other manufacturers. So it's going to be the flow-on effects of this artificially created pressure will be really interesting to to watch and see how it plays out. No, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time to be alive. And like I think, though, As with any recession, as with any challenging time economically or politically or anything else, there are always incredible opportunities. There are life-changing opportunities that come out of these times. And for me, if the stock market was to drop another 20 to 40%, I that would make me extremely happy because I would there would be such an incredible buying opportunity from for me that uh, you know I've intentionally left a bit of powder dry for just such an occasion. If the stock market decides to go on discount for another 25 to 40%, I'm here for it. If you'd like to register for free for the mentor sessions with Jason Greenwood, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and click get mentored by Jason. See you there.